You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Now, I think I see some faces in here that were in first service last week that may slept in a little bit. Am I right? Spring forward. Hey, at least you came. You're glad to have you in. You came back. Um, If you are a guest with us this morning or you haven't been here in a little while, I want to say right up front that what we're doing this morning is a little different than what we normally do. Uh, We began a new series last week called All Systems Go. A, system, a systematic theology sermon series, if you will. We're walking through sort of the foundational doctrines of our faith. So the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the church, Scripture, so on and so forth. And, and we're doing something a little different this week and last week to begin the series. Before we jump into the doctrines of our faith, James and I thought it would be helpful to talk about the doctrines of the world. And he's going to put on his mask to, to, muzzle, myself today. to muzzle himself <laughs> from interrupting me, as he did a little bit in first service. Uh, these are doctrines that have become driving worldviews. James covered last week the doctrine of postmodernism, the worldview known as postmodernism. And in short, uh, postmodernism is a worldview that rejects objective truth, It does so by seeking to deconstruct the world primarily through language, changes of language. Uh, Truth in this worldview is simply a social construct, okay? And so uh, the the example I used last week actually is, you know, we believe that murder is bad. In a postmodern world, murder is only bad because we just agreed as a society that it's bad. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it will always be bad. In fact, there could be times where we qualify it as okay because there is no such thing as actual truth, just what we agree upon Can I in postmodernity. Yes, please, I guess, one time. Well, then, obviously, you see the problem between postmodernism and our faith. Our faith is built upon objective truth. So right there, we immediately have roads that go opposite directions. Yes, that is, that is absolutely that the point. That was short. That was short. And, and so what we're going to see this morning, again, is more of this uh, tension between our biblical convictions and what is being perpetrated in the world uh, that we are living in. If you are a guest and you were not here last week, I just want to say up front how important it is for you to go back and watch last week's sermon because James unpacked what postmodernism is in a, much, in a much more detailed sense than what we just did. We just gave you the very nuts and bolts of it. You'll understand what I talk about this morning, but it will make a lot more sense couched in its context, which is postmodernism. He really set the stage for what I'm going to be doing this morning, which is a talk on something called critical theory. And before we go there, I want to give you three cultural snapshots, if you will, of things that are happening in the world today as we know it. The first one is from an article that James posted uh, called Revenge of the Gods. It's an article that um, covers the California Department of Education. This is the public school system in California who is going to vote to determine whether or not they are going to institute a statewide ethnic studies program. And the basis of this is to educate the students on how they have perpetuated oppression in the world. And it's interesting, when you look at this proposal, there's a part where it actually details how students will at one point chant to the Aztec deity of human sacrifice. (laughs) as a way of of kind of giving respect back to those whom they have oppressed. The next one comes from Boston. Boston public schools uh, suspend advanced placement classes, uh, citing that too many students in them are white or Asian. Uh, In this study, it it, it reveals that 70% of the advanced classes are are white or Asian in a district that is 80% black and Hispanic. And so, uh, of course, the, the answer to this is, Racism, right? Um, There is a a merit-based system wherein you have to take a test to determine whether or not you qualify for the advanced classes, and just because so many uh, white and Asian kids have placed well in it, it's a a racist construct now. They're they're debating on whether to even open it back up next year. The third one comes from a peer-reviewed paper out of Oregon. This is a peer-reviewed 
uh, paper, a scholarly paper. You could cite this in research, in academic research. The title of the paper is Glaciers, Gender, and Science, a Feminist Glaciology Framework for Global Environmental Change Research. Now, I know what you may be thinking. Uh, what do feminism and glaciers have in common? Uh, the authors contend that by applying a feminist glaciology to their science, it will lead to more just, and I quote, an equitable science and human ice interactions. So my daughters are four, seven, and seven. The future is bright for them with regard to human ice interactions. Interacting with but glaciers. Yeah, by that point, things will be really, really advanced. Now, why do I show you these? Why do I bring these up? They all seem rather random. Right? I mean, apart from the fact that they have to do with education, uh, they're not in uh, the same states, they're not dealing with the same disciplines, and yet, what I want to argue for this morning is that they are all very connected by an underlying uh, theory known as critical theory. Critical theory. So we're going to spend our time this morning really unpacking what critical theory is, and that is the big million dollar question, isn't it? What is critical theory? How many of you have ever... all say together, what, what is, is critical theory? Right. I'm so glad you asked. So critical theory in a nutshell, this is a very generalized definition, is a way of understanding how societies are structured and how they function. That's it. How they are structured and how they function. As Christians, we live in a society. Jesus calls us to be light in the world, light in your society, right? Go in the world, but don't be of the world. And so if we're going to do that, if we're going to follow the commands of our Lord, then we need to understand how our society is structured. How does it function so that we can interact appropriately? And critical theory offers a way of understanding our society. Now, it's important for you to know up front that critical theory is uh, more or less a large umbrella. You can think of it as a large umbrella, and under this umbrella are many more specific disciplines and theories. So uh, of all of the critical theories out there, the one that you are likely most aware of is critical race theory. It's getting a lot of publicity right now, and our world has for the last uh, probably year or so. Uh, there's critical feminist theory, there's queer theory, there's all kinds of, and these are their terms, not ours. Um, today, what I want to do is I want us to cover the big umbrella, the big overarching topic. And we're going to make some applications. We're going to talk about uh, how these things apply to racism and sexism. But I mainly want you to get the big idea, because if you'll get the big idea, then you'll get how all of these others function. Critical theory is defined by a set of premises, okay? Arguments, if you will. And each of these premises describe an aspect of the society that we live in. So if you will listen with an open mind this morning, you'll have a much better chance of understanding the world around you right now. You'll understand the tension in the world between Christians and non-Christians. So let's begin with premise number one. Premise number one says this, society is divided into two groups, either oppressed or oppressor. Okay, so the idea here is that in any society, regardless of where you lived, regardless of the country that you're in, you have two groups and only two groups. Your identity is not an individual identity. Your identity is found within the group that you exist within. And it is either a group that is oppressing people or it is a group that is being oppressed. There are no in-betweens. There is no middle ground. You are either actively being oppressed or actively oppressing. Now, let me preface everything by saying this morning that what I'm about to give you in these premises are not my opinions, okay? These are not my arguments, this is not a conservative or a Christian perspective. I'm going to just quote to you from critical theory textbooks, chapter and verse, if you will, okay? Down to the page number where I'm getting this stuff. So you, so you don't think I'm just making this up. The first premise comes from uh, two theorists, Oslam Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo. They write, for every social group, there is an opposite group. The primary groups that we name here are race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, status, exceptionality, religion, and nationality. They go on to say, oppression describes a set of policies, practices, traditions, norms, definitions, and explanations which function to systematically exploit one social group to the benefit of another social group. The group that benefits from this exploitation is termed the dominant group. That's the oppressor group, okay? The one that is exploited is termed the minoritized or target group. That's the oppressed. Sexism, 
Racism, classism, ableism, and heterosexism are specific forms of oppression. Now, at first glance, as Christians, we look at this kind of thing and we may be thinking, well, what's wrong with this? I mean, isn't racism oppression? Yes. Yes. Isn't sexism oppression? Yes. yes. Doesn't God hate oppression? Yes. Shouldn't we as Christians also hate oppression? Yes. Well, then we can pray and go home. Right. <laughs> We're done. But go back to the original argument. Go back to the original premise. Society is divided into two groups, oppressed and oppressors. That is a problem, biblically speaking. Premise number one says that simply by existing, simply by being born, you are in one of these two groups. Never mind your heart, never mind your intentions, your motives, your actions, which happen to be a, a really important factor in all of this. You are either someone who is oppressed or you are guilty of oppressing others. It's not merit-based. It has nothing to do with what you do, how you do it, what you say, how you act. It's simply that you were born. You are either in one of these two categories. Quick note on Robin D'Angelo. She's become a, a pretty uh, well-known and, and widely regarded critical theorist uh, as of late. Uh, if, if you are familiar most recently with the Coca-Cola fiasco, anyone... Anyone familiar with that when I say Coca-Cola? Yeah. So I've got the... Uh, I've got There's the, been plenty of Coca-Cola fiascos. There the history, has, yeah. there. So uh, there was a, a recent uh, training that Coca-Cola did with some of its employees where um, the basis of this was essentially try to be less white. Uh, to be white means that you're oppressive, that you're arrogant, that you're certain, that you're defensive, that you're ignorant, that you're uh, not humble. So you need to listen more, believe, break with apathy. Um, Essentially, stop being white, okay? That lecture was uh, from a PowerPoint that came from a lecture by Robin D'Angelo. So this lady that I'm quoting here quite a bit um, is, is the kind of leading voice behind that. Well, Coke is only one of the corporations. Really, critical theory has infected all oh. corporations in America. And to be fair, just as a point of, of transparency, um, D'Angelo was not aware that Coca-Cola was doing this with her work, um, but it's her work. I mean, she stands by her work, right? So it, just to, for those of you who are skeptics, like, you know, I'm not saying that she's perpetrating this on Coke, but it is her presentation that they borrowed from to use in their training. That's premise number one. Society is divided into two groups. It's known as the social binary, okay? Premise number two. Oppression occurs when a dominant group imposes their ideology on everyone. So again, this is straight from the source. Oppression occurs when a dominant group maintains power by opposing their ideology on everyone. This is from Is Everyone Really Equal, page 73. Now, this is fascinating. They're, they're essentially expanding the definition of oppression, of, of what it means to be oppressed. Traditionally, when we hear the word oppression, the, biblic, or the, uh, the dictionary definition is this, prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment. So when you hear oppression... This is the definition that most people would traditionally think of. When you think of like colonial slavery, this is oppression in the dictionary sense, okay? Um, the biblical definition, I, I think of it, uh, Exodus 1 verses 9 and 10. It says that Pharaoh said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So in this passage, Pharaoh, over all of Egypt, is driven by fear that the Hebrews might grow too big. They might overtake us if they continue to multiply. We need to do something. And so what does he suggest? Verses 11 and 12, therefore they set taskmasters masters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, there's that word, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. You know, there's an old truth here that uh, whenever you're oppressed and joy is stripped out of the life, you, the only thing there is left to do is multiply, right? I mean, it's just, there's nothing else. That's why we're heading into a baby boom exactly. after the pandemic. Exactly, exactly. This is what the Word of God, it's not my opinion, it's in the Bible. So listen, this definition of oppression is not the definition of oppression in critical theory. Iris Young, another critical theorist, gives us a good working definition. In its new usage, oppression designates the disadvantage and injustice some people suffer not because of a tyrannical power that coerces them, okay, that's the traditional version, but because of the everyday practices of a well-intentioned liberal society. 
Okay, so again, understand this. If you're in a minoritized group, you are oppressed, and it's not because you've been subjected to cruel and unjust behavior. Some people have. But as a whole, you are oppressed not because you've experienced cruel and unjust behavior. Simply because you exist, you were born into a minoritized group. Now let me give you an example that steps away from these topics for a moment to illustrate what is going on here in critical theory. Imagine that James and I decide after church, we're going to start a baseball league, which actually would be a softball league because churches only do softball for some reason, okay? (laughs) So we're doing a softball league. And we go and we say, you don't have to have any equipment at all. No former experience. We've got all the equipment donated to us. We've got this large, just just go out there. We've got a large bag full of gear. So you come out to the field. We dump it all out. There's bats, there's balls, there's gloves everywhere. And we say, come on, come on out, grab a glove. There's more than enough for everyone. Everyone has a glove. And so you run out there. You're excited. Man, we're going to be in a church softball league. And then it hits you. I'm left-handed. And I bet they don't have any left-handed gloves. You are, by critical theory's definition, oppressed. I'm left-handed. I've been oppressed as a left-hander in a right-handed right. world my right. entire life. Absolutely, because you live in a world designed by right-handed people to make it more easy in life if you are a right-handed individual. So by being left-handed, you are in a minoritized, oppressed group. Okay, uh, It is systemic. Only 10% of the world is, 10, uh, is uh, left-handed. The world is formed based on the majority. The, the well-intentioned practices of a right-handed society are oppressing you. So how do we fix this? Okay, At the very least, here's what we have to do. We have to cease production on right-handed gloves and up production on left-handed gloves. We've got to make sure that there's at least 50-50 split down the middle. That's the very least. If we really want to get serious about addressing this, then what we need to do is we need to get rid of all the gloves. And someone who, who really values justice needs to create an ambidextrous glove that works on either hand so we can stop using such harsh terminology like right-handed and left-handed, left-handed. right? We need to get rid of that. And thus you come to the root of all critical theory, which is to destroy all distinction. Yes. In all of these categories. Through language. No distinction male-female, no right. distinction heterosexual, right. homosexual, right. no distinctions. An ambidextrous glove. That, that solves the problem. Now, obviously, this is a, a, an example that is not rooted in, no one is, is caring about right-handed and left-handed right now. It could, could come to that, I guess. But the obvious question is, well, what are the dominant groups? What are the dominant groups? And it just so happens I have a chart. Do you have a um, chart to show us? I do. I have a chart. So this is group identities across relations of power, again, from Sensoy and D'Angelo. On the left-hand column, we will see the oppressed group of people. The middle is the type of oppression they faced as that minoritized group that is perpetrated by the right-hand column, which are the privileged groups. So the privileged groups are white, middle-class or wealthy, men, heterosexual, Christian, able-bodied, and a perceived citizen. Now, that, that is an important word. It doesn't mean that you're actually a citizen of the United States. It means you are perceived to be one, Okay. Um, The oppressed groups are then people of color, uh, poor, working class, women, transgender, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, Muslim, Buddhist, Jew, Hindu, or any other non-Christian group, and perceived immigrants and or indigenous people. Now, just as a curiosity, how many of you are seeing something like this for the first time? Just as a show of hands. Okay, so again, about like first service. Not not many of you uh, are unaware of, of this, at least a base level. This is right out of a textbook, okay? This is what is being used to train people in my generation and younger in universities across the, the, the country. Um, now, I don't want to get too complicated here, but, but I do need to introduce another topic or another term that helps us in this part of the discussion, and that is the term intersectionality. Intersectionality. What is intersectionality? Intersectionality explains the varying levels of oppression that an individual can experience. So it's not as simple as to say that you are either oppressed or an oppressor. You might be both in some ways. You might experience more oppression than someone who experiences a lesser degree of oppression, okay? Um, There was a picture, so two years ago, I guess two and a half years ago now, there was a big march on Washington 
a bunch of women. It was a march for women's reproductive rights, which is just a clever way of saying a march for abortion. And uh, if you remember back, it was the vagina hat march where the women had the, the hats. That's where Madonna um, stood on the stage and said, all of you have had abortions, raise yeah, your hand. And yeah. they went, Yay! Yes, absolutely. And so, so this was going on. Um, it was a march meant for solidarity for women, an oppressed group. Let's get together and let's let our voices be heard. But in that, there was a picture of a woman uh, holding up a sign that said, don't forget, white women voted for Trump. Now, apart from the very broad strokes in this picture, because I am certain, I know some, uh, that all white women did not vote for Trump, and millions of non-white women did vote for Trump, but never mind the facts for a minute, this picture is significant because it, it demonstrates something about what intersectionality is getting at. This is a march for women's solidarity, and yet there is disagreement within this oppressed group about who is more oppressed than not. So here's what might happen in a group like this. You might have a woman holding up a sign like this that says, yes, you might face oppression as a woman, but at least you're white. Try being a non-white woman. To which another woman hears this conversation and comes up and says, hey, uh, I, I understand that being a non-white woman is difficult. I am one, but at least you're a Christian. You go to church on Sundays. Try being a non-Christian non-white woman, and then you will know what true oppression feels like. To which another woman walks up and says, yes, it is true that a non-Christian non-white woman experiences more oppression uh, than just a non-white woman, but imagine being like me. My husband doesn't make the money that your husband makes. We're in the lower class category. Try being a lower class non-Christian non-white woman. To which another woman comes up and says, well, at least you're a citizen in the United States. Try being an immigrant lower class non-Christian non-white woman. To which another woman feels her way over and says, yes, I understand it's difficult being a, an immigrant, lower-class, non-Christian, non-white woman, but at least you can see. I'm blind living in a world created by people with two eyes. <laughs> Imagine being a blind immigrant, lower-class, non-Christian, non-white woman. That's real oppression. Are you following the absurdity here? The, all these things intersect. So, so here's the, the deal is that it, it will never end. There will always be something else that, that trumps this one, no pun intended. Every one of us in this room is oppressed and as an oppressor, except for... The most oppressed. That group that has everything checked off to give them oppressor status. Now, I will say that um, this will eventually collapse under the weight of its own absurdity. Well, it's cynical, and it offers no option. It offers no solution. Nothing. But the, the problem and the concern is how much damage is it going to do before it gets there? Right. How much damage is going to occur before it finally does collapse? It already is. So that's the first two premises. Premise number three, lived experience gives oppressed groups privileged access to reality. Now, this is another important term in critical theory, lived experience. What is lived experience? It's exactly what it says it is. It's experience that you have lived through. Critical theory says that if you're oppressed, you live a more truthful reality than someone in an oppressor group. In other words, oppressors can't really see the world for what it actually is. Jose Medina, critical theorist in uh, Epistemology of Resistance, writes, Dominant groups characteristically have experiences that foster illusory perceptions about society's functioning. Whereas subordinate groups characteristically have experiences that at least potentially give rise to more adequate conceptualizations. In other words, what he's saying is if you are an oppressor, your reality is skewed. It's marred. You can't really understand the world around you. Only minoritized groups can understand how the world actually functions. So people like James and I who are white, male, heterosexual, Christian citizens, not in the lower class, we have no clue what's going on in the world. We have no way of actually knowing what reality is like. Now, folks, in the church, hear me when I say this. This is dangerous. Yeah. This is a dangerous teaching. Now, I do want to say, I want to give partial credit here. It is true that as a male, I do not have a full perspective of what it means to be a woman in the United States. Okay? That's important. That's an important uh, admission to make. It is true that I don't have full perspective of what it means to be a non-white person in the United States. Okay? It's important 
for you to hear that. I don't want to discount that. But am I totally incapable of knowing? Am I totally incapable? So, for example, my wife Jessica has a uniquely female experience. There are aspects of her life that I cannot understand. But in her experience, does she not still feel pain and loss and sadness and bitterness and grief and resentment and a variety of other emotions that are not uniquely female but uniquely human? Which we all share. Which we all share because we're all created in the image of God. It's very dangerous to say you can never understand what it's like to be in this class or in this race or in this sex or in this group because all of us are uniquely created in God's image and all of us experience and intuit the world around us with the same emotions. Now, they may look different, they may happen differently, but at the, at the very core level, they're the same. And this is really where postmodernism begins to show itself, because remember, in postmodernism, there's no objective truth. Critical theory says the only truth that matters is a social construct that is constructed by the experience of those who are being oppressed. Never mind objective evidence and rational thought. In fact, those are to be rejected. Anderson and Collins, in Race, Class, and Gender, write, the idea, listen to this, as a Christian, this should, this should make you... This should make you crazy. The idea that objectivity is, be, is best reached through rational thought is a specifically Western and masculine way of thinking and one that we will challenge throughout this book. If you think that objectivity can be reached through rational means, you are an oppressor because that's a masculine and a Western way of thinking and both of those things are no good. Because there is no such thing as objective truth. That's right. In postmodernism. Now, let me speak very candidly to my generation for a moment. And, and, and every generation has something to gain from this, but, but I specifically want my generation and younger to hear this. One effect that this concept of lived experience has, has had on us is it has changed the way we evaluate truth claims. Okay? It's changed the way millennials and younger evaluate truth claims. We evaluate truth claims in a pr predominantly postmodern method, whereas Generation X and older typically evaluates truth claims in a modern Tell method. Tell them why that's true. Um, well, for one, because the modern generation, Gen X and older, they are couched in modernity, which accepts objectivity, and as Christians, we hold that the Scripture is our objective authority. The entire educational system, they've been raised in an educational system of postmodernism. That's right. And so they get that in the education system and come to church and say, well, there is objective truth. And there's this great confusion. That's right. In millennial Christians, how do I negotiate both of these? How do I make this work? So let me give you an example that hits very close to home for us right now. Very relevant. Uh, last couple of weeks, we've been asking for elder recommendations. And, and in the form and online and in paper, it says to look at the qualifications in 1 Timothy and Titus. And if you read those, you find out really quickly that one of the qualifications that's repeated is that elders must be male, okay? So when I get up here and say, we want you to recommend males for potential eldership, I'm making a truth claim. I'm saying elders must be male. And you, as a Christian, are, are then forced to evaluate that truth claim to decide whether or not you're going to agree with it or not. And, and here's where we see the separation. In Generation X and older, you will come at this from a place of modernity, a modern method of evaluating truth. You will measure truth by evaluating evidence, rationale, data, and facts. So here's what you might do. I say elders must be male. You go, you know what? I, I'm going to go and my authority is the Bible. So I'm going to go to 1 Timothy and Titus and make sure that what he's saying is true. Then I'm going to investigate the rest of the New Testament and see, is the rest of the New Testament adding up here as well? I might historically look at how the early church has treated this elder role. How, how have they viewed this? You're going to evaluate it with facts, with evidence, and with data. Now, for my generation, millennials and younger, we don't do that, typically. Typically, we, we come at this from a place of Postmodernism. We evaluate truth claims by questioning the motives of the person making the claim. So when I say elders must be male, never mind the data and the facts. Facts don't exist in a postmodern world. Those are only social constructs. 
Never mind the Bible, because there's no objective truth. And, and how can a, a 2,000-year-old book written in a male-driven patriarchal society have any relevance today to 2021? None of that matters. What matters to me is asking questions like, what would make you make that claim to begin with? What are your intentions here, Pastor Derek, for saying something like that? What is motivating your thought process here? So I say elders must be male. You think, well, of course you think that. You're a male. <laughs> you you just support your power structure. You, you want to preserve power. You don't want a woman, a lesser person, telling you what to do. This is, this is where our minds... Now, it may not go that extreme, but this is how we're wired up. Never mind the data. We just need to ask questions about the person speaking. Folks, this is why there's such a rift between generations in the church today. It's not just a generational gap. We've always kind of just played that off. Like the millennial generation and the Gen X, there's this generational gap. And, and there is always a generational gap, no doubt about it. Every generation experiences it. But when you get to that millennial generation, there's a line drawn. It's not just a generational gap anymore. We're talking about a worldview gap. We're talking about an entirely different way of thinking. It's not that we just have different opinions about, about issues in the world. We have different methods for evaluating truth claims to form our opinions. Last week when I was speaking on postmodernism, you'll remember postmodernism was just born in the late 60s. It was imported from French academics, and it was in academia for about the first 20 years. It wasn't until the mid to early 90s or mid-80s to early 90s that it really got feet with the social, modern social justice That's movement. Right. So my children are both millennials, born in the 80s. Uh, they were raised completely in an educational system that had a postmodern worldview. This facts don't matter because... Objective truth doesn't matter. There is no such thing. So right. we look at motives. It's very cynical. Very and that, thus the confusion for millennial Christians today yes. trying to evaluate, trying to negotiate in a world of postmodernism, but having a faith that depends upon objective truth. It's very difficult for them. And you feel like, as a, as a millennial and younger, in, 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 a, in a social setting, in a secular setting, that you are literally an alien. Like how, And so you're forced then as a young person, to either skirt on convictions that you have in order to uh, be accepted into these social groups, or you're kind of ousted and seen as, uh, as an idiot. We'll talk about more about that in a moment. But, but it's important for you to get in the church, because this is where I'm really concerned about it. There is a rift, and it is because not because we, we disagree on concepts, it's that we don't even know how to talk about them. We're speaking two different languages. There are two different lenses here. The older generation is going to rely heavily on facts. The younger generation is going to rely heavily on feeling. And here's the reality. Both of them have strengths. Yes, they do. We need objectivity in our lives, young people. We need it. We absolutely must have it if we're going to have a confessional faith, which we do. If you're a Christian, you have a confessional faith, something that has been confessed historically for 2,000 years now. Okay? But on the other hand, you, the whole, you know, like, and I, I love the guy, the, the Shapiro is like, you know, facts don't care about your feelings is not very effective either because we do need to have empathy and we do need to, to, to try and, and, and negotiate the motivations of ourselves and other people sure. and, and, and how those things interact with one another. So let me give you a truth before we move on from this. It's not that younger people and older people disagree with one another. They don't even know how to talk with one another. They don't even know how to talk with one another. They're different that's languages. A, that's what's going on in Washington, D.C. today. Yeah. yeah. You, you see, there are two conflicting worldviews. They don't even know how to talk to one another, much less compromise on policy, because one party is couched in postmodernism and critical theory, and the other still holds on to modernity, modernity. which is objective truth. Folks, this is real. This is not just theoretical. It is very real, filtering through Washington, D.C., into right here in, in the church. It's causing division and conflict right here yes. in the middle of the body of Christ all over America. That's exactly right. Which is one of the reasons why James and I have, have done everything in our power to maintain both privately and publicly true unity between one another. Because as a millennial and a boomer, we... We, we created all the good music. You did. We just perfected it. Um, <laughs> We, uh, we have very different worldviews that we were raised in, and yet the thing that unifies James and I is the, Word of God. the Scripture. It's always the Scripture. Premise number four, social justice is the means 
to end oppression. Social justice in critical theory is not just important. It's the highest important. It's the highest moral imperative there is. Mary McClintock said, working towards a celebration of diversity implies working for social justice, the elimination of all forms of social oppression. So social justice is the means by which a society breaks down the social binary, the oppressed and oppressor groups. It is the necessary gospel, if you will, to reaching and achieving true equality. Traditional social justice is simply not enough anymore. Bell Hooks uh, wrote, movements for social justice that hold on to outmoded ways, this is older versions of social justice, of thinking and acting tend to fail. In other words, we're going to reject all that. That didn't work. Mm -hmm. It didn't work, so we need something new. The gospel hasn't worked. Exactly. So understand, social justice is not a bad thing. Christians, get that. It's a good thing if you understand what true social justice is, and that's a topic for another discussion. Can but, I kind of butt in here yeah, for just a second? Yeah. See, we, we run the, the risk of misunderstanding what is being said. That's right. When, when millennials hear social justice, they are very big on social justice as they should be. They are passionate about social justice. The problem is they don't understand the definition of the modern social justice movement. That's right. What it even is. And so they just hear that and without looking beneath and seeing what that really means, then they will tend to hook onto it, but then all of a sudden find themselves in tension within the church and within biblical truth and, and this thing out here. And the problem is because what we mean by social justice as Christ followers and what the modern social justice means by social justice are two completely definitions. Yes. Just as if you speak to a Jehovah's Witness. Yes. And they say, I believe, I believe in Jesus. In, I believe in Jesus. Well, then the average person goes, well, there must be Christians. But when you get beneath and understand their definition of who Jesus is, you begin to quickly understand they're not talking about the Jesus of the New Testament. They're not talking about eternal God who took upon Himself human form. So we have to go beneath the verbiage and get to the actual meaning. That's exactly and we should all be about social justice, but not postmodern critical theory form of social justice, no. but God's form That's of right. social justice. That's exactly right. Yes, absolutely. Now, here's, here's the reality. For critical theory, it is their gospel. There is nothing higher, and, and this is really where we see our biblical worldview become not only incompatible with critical theory's worldview, but actually competing against one another. Um, I want to examine and compare here. I'm going to give you four worldview questions, four basic questions that we ask, and let's see how each of these worldview, uh, worldviews answer them, okay? The first big sort of existential question is, who are we? Who am I? Right? How do I know who I am? The biblical worldview says every human being is created uniquely in the image of God. Genesis 1:27. Critical theory states that humans are divided into various groups, either oppressed or oppressors. So that is created by societal by society. structures. Yes. So it's not an objective truth. No. It's just a it's just a, a, it's a, a social construct. construct. Yeah. But when we read Genesis, that is stating objective Objectivity. truth. Yes, absolutely. So you have in one one group of people. Humanity created in God's image. Critical theory, you have two groups, oppressed and oppressor. Question number two, what is our problem? What's our issue? What's plaguing us? The biblical worldview says sin, right? Sin is our problem, and it affects everyone. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Critical theory says oppression of minoritized groups is the problem. That is the one and only sin in the critical theory world. Number three, what is the solution? How do we fix it? The biblical worldview says the solution to any and all sin is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heart change. Heart change at a very core heart level. Critical theory says liberation by means of social justice. Social justice is the gospel. That is how we fix this, is by acting justly. And number four, what is our purpose? What were we made for? Why do we exist? The biblical worldview says to love God and glorify Him in everything that we do. Critical theory says to practice social justice, simply to, to fight for the oppressed. And you see those two completely opposite. The highest value in postmodernism critical theory is social justice. In our faith, the highest value is individual heart change through Jesus Christ. Very different. Totally different. 
very different. Now, let me speak for a moment about something that is very important, and I want to be very clear about this so as not to be misunderstood, because it's very relevant, and, and it's a, a typically, a, I think, a, a fairly divisive topic, even in the church. In the critical theory worldview, because social justice is the highest moral imperative, one of the implications of that is that anything done in the name of social justice is permissible. Okay, So throwing bricks and bike locks and bats at people, generally a bad thing. But if it's being done for social justice, it's not, it's not only acceptable, it's, it's, it's required. Because social justice is the highest moral imperative. And this is really where we, we find the role of rioting today in our culture. And, and I do, again, want to just pause for a moment because I don't want to be understood or misunderstood here. Listen to my words. <laughs> Good luck with that. Whenever we look back on history, okay, historically, we see people acting out of violence or rioting. Typically, in those groups, there is a goal in mind. And that goal is formed out of a place of pain that is generally not being adequately heard. So people feel pain They feel a sense of anger and frustration. No one is listening to me, so maybe if I burn that building down, people will finally start paying attention, okay? Um, Proverbs 29.8, it says, Scorners set a city aflame, but wise men turn away anger. Now, this sounds like writing. Why are cities set aflame? Because of things like pain and fear and anger. There's a reason. And how do we combat anger? The Scripture gives us the answer to that. Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So here, we're learning a biblical definition here of how to address this. When someone is angry and they're acting out of anger, the worst thing you can do is give them a harsh word. The best thing you can do is a gentle answer. It turns away wrath, okay? Last summer, we said this, and I'm going to say it again today, on camera, on recording, so we can go back if we need to and point to it. Riots are bad. Can we say that together? Riots, Riots are, are bad. bad. That's we a do Christian not, worldview. Yeah, we do not condone riots. I had a woman tell me recently that she left our church because someone in leadership said that the church supports rioting. And I dared her, and I will dare you, to find me where that happened. Because I went back and read the whole exchange, and there is nowhere in that exchange, anywhere where you could even remotely intuit well, such you know a thing. know where she got it. Because we were promoting listening. Listen. Right. Listen right. to our brothers and sisters right. in Christ who are in minority situations and hear their pain. That's right. And she, she went all the way to, then you're supporting riots. Right. No, we never no. said that. No. We said that there is a time yes. for us to seek to enter into as much as we possibly can their experience. And that is a good thing. It is a that good is thing. A godly it is a Christian thing. thing. To do. Yes. We've done that with our elders. Two of our elders are black men. We spent some time. Guys, Tell help us, us understand yes. your experience. Yes. We do it all of the time. We need to do more of that. But that is different from saying we accept rights. Now, let me give you the opposite worldview. Our vice president, Kamala Harris, is very much a postmodernist and critical theorist. Last summer, when all the writing was going on, Kamala Harris, while she was still a candidate, no, wasn't in office yet, said they should continue to riot. Why? Because they're doing it for social justice. And that is the gospel. That is the highest value. Therefore, Whatever means you, you use to get there, it is okay. She said those words. Yeah. Now, here is the difference, folks. MLK Jr. was a pastor, a Christian. He had a, a modern worldview, the belief in objective truth. His Christian faith informed how he approached racism, nonviolent racism, right? Today, that has been completely rejected by the modern social justice movement. No, you must accomplish it by overthrowing the evil structure. Now, look at how much progress, we're not perfect, but look how much progress has been made since 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was signed. We're not perfect, but look how much, how much progress has been made. And look what the social justice movement today is about to undo and destroy everything that MLK Jr. stood for and preached and gave his life for. Yep. So let me me just say again, riots are bad, okay? But 
I'm going to also suggest to you something that might, might sound really controversial, and I want you to just follow me for a moment. Focusing on riots are bad is almost always not the best focus as well. And here's why. It's not even consistent with the kind of ministry that we do here at City on a Hill. When something happens, it's like the people of God want nothing more than the pastor to just say, riots are bad. Of course they're bad. Stop it. That's not even debatable. But here's here's an example of why that is the most ineffective way of handling this problem. Imagine that you are a parent and that you have a son or a daughter who has been steeped into addiction. And you are at your wit's end, and you just want your precious baby boy or baby girl to get off the drugs. And you hear about this hospital church that will accept your son or daughter, that will do ministry with your son or daughter. And so you give it a shot. You grab them. You say, come to church. Come and meet these men who are on the front lines of doing this kind of ministry. And you sit down with James and I, and you say, here is my son and daughter. They are steeped in addiction. What do you have to say to them? How would you feel as a parent if we looked them in the eye and said, Drugs are bad. Stop it. You'd be like, thanks. Thank you for that. Like we haven't said that 1,700 times. No, drugs are bad. That's Stop not, it. That's not what we say. We, <laughs> we ask questions like, why are you using drugs? What pain are you trying to cover up in your life that led you to thinking that drugs were your only sane option? Let's get to the pain. Let's get to the root. Let's get to the heart. When you focus on writing is bad, it's like saying drugs are bad, porn is bad, alcohol is bad. No crap. But these are not the problem. They're a symptom of the problem. And thus, when we as pastors say, white people, we need to shut up for a while about the riots and just listen. People interpret that. Oh, then you support support writing. Yeah. No, we support empathy. Yes. We support caring about the experience of another Christ follower in the body of believers. We definitely support that. Let me tell you, this is what makes critical theory flat out demonic. All right? Because like any evil ideology, it preys on hurting people. It depends upon hurting people to continue to hurt. So here's what happens. When all you're focusing on is writing is bad and you're not listening... Then critical theory comes along and it says, I understand why you do it. In fact, I only not only understand why you do it, I encourage it. It's the only way these, these, these deaf people are going to hear you. You need to do it more. You need to burn things. You need to destroy things. It's actually good, not bad, because it is accomplishing social justice, which is the highest form of moral imperative in the world. Folks, that is demonic. But they can do it, and it is effective because... For the most part, many believe we haven't listened to their pain. And in many believe we haven't cared about their experience. And what is the antidote to that? It is to care and it is to listen. But out of frustration, they go to this, well, this is, the gospel hasn't done any good. Right. The gospel hasn't made progress, and, but it has made progress, and, but it hasn't overthrown it in a week or two. Let me take it a step further. Many people believe they haven't been heard because they haven't been heard. That's right. Because we're so set on law, 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 and we forget that we are a faith of what? Grace. Amen. Amen. And mercy and compassion. So don't interpret because we're saying that CRT and all of critical theory and postmodernism is, is, is demonic, that, that means we're racist. That, don't interpret that, that we don't care about our black brothers and sisters' experience, or Hispanic, or uh, that we don't care about the hurt and the pain in the person who's living in a trans, transgender experience. Don't interpret those two, because the, the, the narrative is, if you are against Black Lives Matter because it's a Marxist, Marxist uh, ideology or critical race theory, then you're a racist. And the reason they're able to be successful about that is because the truth of the matter is most white people, white Christians, have never really cared to empathize That's right. or to enter in or to listen. That's right. This is, this is a result of our unwillingness. Now, let me give you a truth. This is an important one. A moral wrong used to accomplish a moral right is morally wrong. A moral wrong used to accomplish a moral right is morally wrong. Something that is wrong is wrong, period. Sin is sin, right? But this is what evil does. It preys upon hurting people to accomplish its goal. This is right out of Satan's playbook. Right out of 
This is why it is so important, people of God, to listen, as we've been saying, to uncover the pain and the wounds so that we can actually address it with the real solution, which is the gospel of Jesus. Is social justice wrong? No. Is social justice the highest moral imperative in our existence? No. So we've got to do better. We have to do better than law. We have to be about grace. We have to be about grace. Let me give you two. I'm going to do two passages here, and then we'll be done, if you'll hang with me. One passage I think is really helpful for this discussion on social justice in particular is James 1.27. James says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. And then he gives two attributes for pure, undefiled religion, which is what we want, right? Yes, you're, some of you are so confused, like, I don't even know if, do I want pure and undefiled religion? I have, yes. I have no idea. <laughs> yes, we want pure, undefiled religion. Here's the first attribute. Visiting orphans and widows and their affliction. This is what true, undefiled religion looks like. It looks like social justice to an extent, doesn't it? Now, James is not limiting us to only orphans and widows. He's giving us a category of people that we are to care for, people who cannot care for themselves, people who cannot speak for themselves. We as Christians are to care for and speak for them. And those were two categories in the first century that had no means of support. Nothing. We have many categories now in our day and age. The same principle applies. So let me just say to you, if you want to speak out against critical theory, critical race theory, and as a Christian, you should speak out against the dangers of it, the worst thing you can do is deny or downplay the existence of racism. That's right. It's the worst thing you can do. There is. So I, I, I didn't have time for a service. I'm, I'm probably not this morning, but I want to give you one statistic that I think is, it settles take, it. Take your time. He's, he's got all the time he wants, right? So the American Journal for Sociology uh, released a, a, a study last year that showed that white males with criminal backgrounds got hired at a higher percentage rate than black males without criminal backgrounds. Now, not to be an alarmist, because there are multi-dimensions to these studies, but how about this one for, for an example? This one really just, I was like, I, I don't even know what to say about this. This was a Christian study. This was an evangelical survey. 34% of white evangelicals admitted they would oppose a family member from marrying a black person. That's well, in the that, church. That says we're fighting a war on, on two prongs. We're fighting a secular war that, of postmodernism, and we're fighting a, a war Christian. with Christians yeah. within the church Absolutely. to help get them past this idea that it doesn't exist. So look around the room and just divide the room into three categories. One of those, 34% of you, would oppose a family member from marrying a black person. This is real stuff. Okay, so the worst thing you can do if you're going to speak out against it is deny it because it is real. The means by which we solve it, very different biblically, but it is a real problem, okay? James 1.27 tells us if you want pure and undefiled religion, one of the things you're to do is care for those who cannot care for themselves. But what's the second attribute? He says, and keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, seek justice for those who can't acquire it, but do it in a biblical manner, not in a worldly Don't way. Don't buy the world's methodology. It's going to kill us all. Address it with Jesus, not with some other theory. It is the gospel, Paul says, that breaks down the dividing wall of hostility and, and creates within himself one man, no longer Jew, no longer Gentile, but one Christ follower. If you're going to have pure and undefiled religion, care for those who can't care for themselves, but do it in a manner that is biblical. Now, I want to end with a passage out of uh, 1 Corinthians. I was studying this past week for my Wednesday night class. We're covering right now spiritual gifts, and uh, we talked about the gift of wisdom, which is not a, a gift that is often talked about in the church, but it's an important one. And before we even got into what the gift of wisdom means, we talked about just wisdom in general. What does the Bible say about wisdom? How, how, how is it explained? How is it not explained? Wisdom is applying God's knowledge in a specific context to solve a problem, okay? We're faced with problems today in our world, so we need wisdom. And, and so this passage just really uh, gripped me today or this past week for this morning when I was prepping for this because I, I think, man, it hits us right where we are. Corinthians uh, is a historically a church that believed they had all the wisdom, they were the wisest in the world. Their school of thought, their intelligence, their ability to solve problems was beyond anyone else. And so uh, they're proud of their wisdom. And Paul, when he writes to them in 1 Corinthians, calls them to task on it. 
He talks about wisdom in that book more than any other book in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, I didn't use any big flattering words. I didn't borrow your terminology. I didn't appeal to your desire to be intelligent and wise. I came to you with Christ on a cross. I brought you the answer. Verses 6 and 7, he goes on. He says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. So what Paul is doing is he's establishing to us now a difference. There's worldly wisdom, and it looks one way, and it acts one way, and it solves problems one way. And then there's a godly wisdom, and it acts very differently, and it's not for the immature. And beyond that, it's it's not that it's not even different than worldly wisdom, but worldly wisdom can't even understand it. It looks like foolishness. Verse 14, he says, but a natural man doesn't even accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, he's saying if, if, if these people are not Christians, they're definitely not going to get it. It's going to seem like the most idiotic plan of all time. And then we get to chapter 3. And Paul hits us right where we are with a dagger. He tells us how do we get this wisdom. How do we get it, Paul? How do we get this wisdom? 1 Corinthians 3.18, he says, Let no one deceive you. Or no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become a fool so that he may become wise. Now see, the reality, folks, is that we live in this time where we face a lot of problems in our world. We face real evil in our world, perpetuated by actual racism and actual sexism and actual classism. And the world wants to solve these problems, and they want to do it. They have already begun to do it with critical theory. So they come to this real problem of racism, and they say, critical race theory solves this. And they come to this real problem of sexism, and they say, critical feminist theory solves this. And they believe they are wise to use their ideologies. And what Paul is saying is, if you truly want to be wise, if you truly want to walk in God's wisdom, if you truly want to address these problems in the world with eternal truths, you better get ready for scrutiny. You because be willing to be a fool. You're not in the only eyes of the world. You, you not only need to understand you're going to be called a fool, but you need to embrace the role of fool. Listen, I know the temptation that you face. I do. I'm a millennial. I know the temptation that you face. We all do. You want to be seen by the world as acceptable and intelligent and understanding and cosmopolitan. And, co- and, and you do not, the last thing that you want is for your unbelieving secular friends or even Christian friends who have bought into this to think that you're just some stupid fundamental Bible thumper. You want acceptance. And so some problems, big problems, arise in the world, and the world says, let's end oppression. And you jump on board because it makes you look good and you think it maybe makes Jesus look good too. Not that he needs that. And Paul says, That's not good enough. That's just not good enough. You want to know how to change the world? You want to know how to address racism? You want to know how to address sexism? You want to know how to address classism? You want to address real oppression in the world? Embrace the fool. Become the village idiot. Become the laughing stock of Facebook, and then you'll be wise. Church, listen to me. It's time to man up. I'm using a binary term. Sorry, not sorry. It's time to man up. That's very patriarchal of you. It is. It's time to stop trying to please everyone. Stop trying to appear like one of them. You're not. You're not of this world. Jesus called you out of the world. You've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. You've been purchased with precious blood. Stop pretending to be one of them. Put down this counterfeit wisdom. Put down this demonic ideology. Take up the gospel. Become the fool. Embrace the fool. Wow. This is what real wisdom looks like. It's rejected. It's spit upon. It's laughed at. And God says it is good. And it's the only hope that we have for seeing any kind of fix for the devastation that sin has waged upon us. Folks, 
the truth is, we're not only fighting this spiritual war out there against a godless ideology, we are fighting this spiritual war within the body of Christ. That's right. This is dividing the body of Christ in America more than anything right now. Christians, because of the very reasons that Derek mentioned, and maybe many more, wanting to have a foot in the world and wanting to be seen as this great social justice warrior and all of those kinds of things. So attaching themselves to a postmodern approach, whether they call themselves a postmodernist or not, a critical theory approach, whether they say they buy into CRT or not, or any of those, uh, any of those kinds of critical theories. But in, in essence, that's what they're doing because they want to be seen as wise in the world. And they want, the last thing they want to be seen is as a racist or someone who's against uh, oppression. Or any, and so they wind up with one foot in the world and yet want to keep one foot in the kingdom and riding that fence. And what is happening is that it is dividing the body of Christ. You see, it's, it's really time. I'm calling some folks to repentance today. Some of God's people need to repent of abandoning the only hope there is, the gospel of Jesus Christ changing hearts and adopting a godless theory and, mod- and, and worldview that will not accomplish social justice. It will accomplish the exact opposite. It is tearing down all of the progress since 1964 with the Civil Rights Act and Martin Luther King's legacy. It is destroying it daily. The only hope is the gospel. And that's what Martin Luther King Jr. believed. And that's why he did it the way he did it. And those who do not believe in the objective truth of God and of the gospel have said, we must have this. It is time for war. Did I mention Kamala? Yeah, you did. Folks, I'm having senior moments all the time nowadays. But that's okay. It's fully acceptable. God's people, let's quit fighting this battle among ourselves. Get off of that postmodern mindset. Get, quit being, trying to be the hero of Facebook where all of your liberal friends praise you and all of that garbage. Let me tell you, the only one that I want to hear say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, is my Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. And so it's a time for a call for repentance. And if you're not willing to repent of that, I am, I am asking you to go find a church where you, they will be in agreement with you. For you are divisive here. For the last four or five years, I've been fighting this battle. I've said it 10,000 times if I've said it once. This is not about politics to me. It never has been. It is about worldview. It is about a godless ideology that is making its way, has made its way through our culture and is making its way into the very body of Jesus and is dividing us and destroying us. So if you choose to keep that foot in the world, I invite you to find a church that agrees with you where you can be happy because you are dividing this body of believers. And we have one focus, a baby boomer and a millennial because we agree on the one focus. That's the objective truth of God and is the gospel that is the hope of the world. That's right. None of this brings hope. None. None of it. So go somewhere else if that's what you want to do. But stop dividing this body of believers. We have work to do. We have gospel work to do. We are building bridges into the lives of, and hearts of people who are hurting and wounded and giving them the gospel. And you need to get on board or get out of the way. Please do us a favor. Let's pray. Derek, lead us. Father, we thank you for your truth, which topples over all worldly wisdom. We thank you that you use fools to confound the wise. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to become the fool. To live out your biblical truth requires a growing amount of courage. And so I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, You would empower each of us to do that, to live boldly for you, to speak boldly your truth. For we know that it is the only hope of addressing real problems in this world. 
I thank you for your son, Jesus, who levels the ground of humanity and declares all of us are fallen and broken and sinful, and yet any who come to him might see salvation. We thank you for that truth, and it is a powerful, precious name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for the hard work. We've both put in a lot of time this last month preparing yes. for last week and this week. Next week, we will wrap this up with practical applications of very specific things, how this impacts the family, how this impacts all of these things. And then we're going to jump into 12 weeks of systematic theology That's right. and unpack what our faith really is. God bless you.